So tonight's topic, I last week I told some people that I might talk about romantic love because tomorrow's Valentine's Day, but I realized the past two Februarys I've talked about romantic love and I, I like to vary the talks a little bit. So instead, I'm going to talk about something very different. I'm going to talk about mysticism. And the, the reason I'm choosing this is that... Um, I used to be a member of a group called Kaf. For about 20 years, I was part of this spiritual group. No one has ever heard of it. It's a, it's a South American spiritual group based on meditation. But in Kaf, the, the February moon was seen as a kind of um, very potent period of, of mystical energy. And so just that's always kind of in the back of my mind in February, even though I'm no longer a member of Kaf. So... Um, in honor of the February moon. I'm talking about mysticism. And I'll begin by saying that mystic is a, is a word that I would use, that's, it's part of my self-understanding to say that I am a mystic, but it, it's seldom a way that I would introduce myself to somebody else, you know, because it, it sounds almost pretentious, you know. Sounds almost like I'm saying, yes, I'm a mystic, you know, like, you know, Frisa Vavala, Ramakrishna, and Mike McGarry, like all, you know, <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm not using the word to, um, you know, try to uh, put myself up on a shelf with the illuminated beings of the past. Um, if anything, I'm, I'm much more for a kind of um, democratization of mysticism. A, a kind of demystifying of mysticism, as it were. And so I'm going to start in an odd place. I'm going to start with sense experience. Um, and think of, think of the experience we have when we look at the color blue. You know, we have an experience, and we have this label, the word blue. And the label is convenient for communication in the sense that I say blue and then you know what I'm talking about. It's, it, it's con- convenient for communication. Um, but the label doesn't really capture what the experience is. In fact, there's no way in words to encapsulate what that direct experience is. You know, if someone is blind from birth, there's no combination of words we can say to them that would substitute for that experience. You know, and of course, as we know from from mindfulness practice, you know, if anything, the label gets in the way of the direct experience, you know, to be thinking, I am looking at something blue rather than just being in the experience, you know, and it's similar with all sense experiences, with taste, with smells, with sounds. Um, We have labels, but the raw experience itself is something that is beyond all words. It, there's an immediacy to it that is beyond words and beyond conceptual thought. And I point to this because I, I, in some ways I would call sensory experience almost pre-mystical. It's, you know, it, it's direct, it's very direct, it's very, it's very in front of our face. Um, But it's a direct, immediate experience that completely confounds our, our, our mental abilities. 
It completely confounds our verbal abilities, and it, it is not controlled by words. Um, we live in a society that's really big about you know trying to control everything with words. And one way to say it is I think that the sensual in many ways is a gateway into the mystical. I think this was really one of the insights of Zen Buddhism to pay such, you know, glorious, vivid attention to, you know, every detail of everyday life, to to sweeping, to raking, to, you know, all this stuff, and then having the breakthrough experiences through that. And I want to pause on this this word sensual for a minute, um, because this is a word in such dire need of rescue. It's uh, the word sensual, like the word intimacy in in everyday life, just gets relegated only to sexuality. That's all it's about, you know. And there's so many places where we can explore sensuality. You know, I hope that all of us are practicing mindful eating and really having a sensual experience of food. I mean, even when we're when you're very thirsty, like just that experience of being very thirsty and having cold water to drink. You know, what an amazing sensual experience that is. Um, you know, to to walk outside in the morning and to you know, have the the blue sky and the fresh air and the sounds of the birds and just be in the the sensuality of that moment, you know. Um, I mean, even breathing, you know, we were just in a 40-minute silent sit, you know, but there's, when you pay attention to the breath, there's actually something incredibly delicious about the breath. There's There's a rich sensuality just in breathing, you know, So I would say that sensory experience and, and mindfulness practice around sensuality and sensory, sensory experience is certainly a, a doorway in. Um, I think the mystical really begins to open when we can interrupt our, our logical strategic mind, when we can cultivate silence, and when we can cultivate the quality of our attention. And of course, meditation and the other spiritual pursuits are good at this. Um, and this is something I've talked about before, but this whole idea of the quality of our attention. Um, and the analogy I like to use for this is with food. If you consider people in famine conditions, the only, the only question that matters is, is there food or not? It's the only question that matters. All, all concerns about, all discussions about quality of food are out the window in famine conditions. But when we're in conditions of plenty, then we can start to be concerned with quality. You know, I like this brand better than that brand, or I want it fixed in this way. You know, when there's, when there's conditions of plenty, then one can have a connoisseur of food. Well, in the analogy, we live in a society that is in famine conditions around attention. 
there are so many people in this society who don't know how to pay attention, who don't have enough attention, who don't aren't able to pay enough attention to the things that matter to them, who aren't getting enough attention from pe- from others, you know. Um, and really, under these conditions, the only question that is usually of concern is just the simple binary: is somebody paying attention or not? That's you know, it's it's that simple binary. Um, meditation and other spiritual practices open us up more to an abundance of attention. Um, when we can actually start to appreciate the quality of attention. So what would very high quality attention look like? It, it's actually, I'll share one of my favorite stories about Gandhi. And this is a, a story, I know I've shared this before, but in the late 30s, um, the journalist William Shirer, he worked for Like Magazine, and he, he was sent to India to interview Gandhi. And at this point, Gandhi, he had already done the March of the Sea. He was the undisputed leader of the Indian independent movement. He was coordinating action throughout the country. Like, you know, essentially there were a billion people depending on this man. And the, the demands on his time, his attention, and his energy were just phenomenal. And Shira knew this. And was very grateful, you know, Gandhi carved out this morning that they could talk. And after the interview, Shira said what impressed him the most about Gandhi, more than any individual thing that he said, was that the entire time they talked, everything about Gandhi's manner suggested that he had all the time in the world and there was absolutely nothing he would rather be doing in the world than talking to William Shira. You know, that is incredibly high quality attention. That quality of spaciousness and that quality of affirmation. You know, to be able to pay that that level of attention that just communicates that invitation, you can be however you want to be, and however you want to be is perfectly fine. You know, and I think it's an interesting question for all of us in any interaction. What is the invitation implicit in the kind of attention we're given? You know, I know that in the the rush of of my everyday life with students, it's, you know, it's probably something more like, okay, you got me for a minute here. You just got me for a minute, but then I have to go, you know, kind of thing. There is a profound and vastly underappreciated link between the quality of our attention and our overall happiness. Um, in, in many ways, I would call this one of the, the, the foundational insights of the Buddha himself, that, that attention and happiness are so intimately linked. Um, I know in my own life, when there's days that I'm um, you know, wrapped up in whatever self-pity story, I walk around in a very flat, gray, uninspiring world. Um, When my attention is more sharp and clear, the world sparkles more. And when I'm really incredibly centered, it's almost like there's a presence, you know, like the, the 
as it were, the, the presence of the deep silence that underlies everything. Um, you know, and it, it's very interesting just to look at, you know, what stories do we have about how the world is? You know, the world is just this way, you know. And how much are we creating that experience of the world through the quality of our own attention? You know? And so I think this cultivating silence, cultivating attention, I would say, you know, there's certainly nothing special about me. You know, anyone can cultivate these things. Um, it's sad that we live in a society that is so, um, that mitigates so much against this. You know, we, we live in a society that, among other things, has multi-billion dollar in industries that commodify attention. <laughs> You know, it's a very strange world we live in. And so to pay incredibly, to have high quality attention where we're ascending this spaciousness and affirmation, um, both to the outer world, um, but also to ourselves. And it's funny because, of course, you know, having that kind of spacious, affirmative attention toward oneself, you know, it might be criticized by the, by the cynic as, you know, self-involved nasal gaze, navel gazing, you know. Um, but the more I can accept about myself, the more I can accept about the world. The more that I can have compassion for my own brokenness, the more I can have compassion for all the brokenness of the people around me. And when I'm able to see others at that level of affirmation, I start to see and even start to feel the interconnection that binds us all together. You know, and I think there's probably moments that we've all had glimpses of that. There's a way as we drop more into ourselves and approach more our wholeness that we're approaching, how can I say, our wholeness itself has a numinous quality to it. Um, the formulation of the Upanishads, the, the Hindu Upanishads, is that you know, they, they talk about Brahman, which is cosmic consciousness, you know, enfolding the whole universe. And then when I go deep inside, my deepest self is Atman. And the, the, you might say the core teaching of the Upanishads is that Atman is Brahman. That within each one of us is the eternity that, that spans the whole cosmos, you know. So eternity, we, you know, there's eternity in the direction of transcendence, in eternity in the direction of imminence and that those two link up. Another way to say it, and I don't, I don't know if it's maybe a different way to just say the same thing, but I would say that 
just as our eye is the organ that apprehends light. And in practice, my experience of my eye is not really different from my experience of sight. Um, So our wholeness is the organ that apprehends the sacred. And the more in touch we are with our wholeness, the more whole we are, um, the more, um, as it were, trans, uh, transparent we become to the sacred. So I'll, I'll close with this, uh, one of my favorite poems, and this poem is on the quote sheet. This is a very short poem by E.E. E. Cummings that I think summarizes something very profound about the mystical worldview. Love is a place. And in this place of love, move with brightness of peace. All places. Yes is a world. And in this world of yes, live skillfully curled. All worlds. So I'll share the quote sheet. So I shared the quote sheet with the the Zoomies. Oops. And for the Roomies. over from days of having to do hybrid high school teaching when there were roomies and zoomies. And if they're extra, you can just make a pile back there. So I put the E.E. Cumming quote, the poem at the top. It's a very short poem. From Heraclitus, the pre-Socratic philosopher, um, we only have fragments of Heraclitus's writings, but they're astonishing. And it's this amazing quote, although the logos is common to everyone, most people live according to their own logic. The logos, it's such a hard word to translate because it, the word logos means, it means thought or idea, it also means mind. In this context, it it means almost the um, the divine word, the the that aspect of the divine that communicates to humans. Um, centuries after Heraclitus was writing, the New Testament explicitly um, identified Christ as the Logos, <laughs> that aspect of God that becomes visible and communicates. So. The Logos is common to everyone, but most people live according to their own logic. Amonas the Hermit says, It is by silence that the saint grew, that it was because of silence that the power of God dwelt in them, because of silence that the mysteries were known to them. You know, and there's, uh, it's astonishing how much power there is when we open up to the power of silence.
Henry David Thoreau says quite simply, I believe in the forest, in the, in the meadows, and in the night in which the corn grows. Love, Henry David. From Gerard Manley Hopkins, there lives the dearest freshness deep down things. And again, this, this I would, this resonates very much with my own experience of when my, my attention is sharper or clearer it's like there's a freshness that's revealed. Um, from Richard Wilhelm, and this requires a little explanation, he translated the I Ching, and, and this really is his kind of summary of Sung Dynasty Confucian commentaries on the I Ching. So this is a commentary on hexagram 50. The fate of fire depends on wood, as long as there wood below the fire above burns. And it is the same in human life. There is in any person likewise a fate that lends power to her life. And if she succeeds in assigning the right place in her life to her life and her fate, this brings the two into harmony, and she puts her face, fate on a firm footing. And what he's calling fate, I might call something more like dharma, you know this idea, or dharma, or even purpose, you know, am I, am I living in a way that is aligned with my deeper purpose, as opposed to like a head-level plan? Carl Jung said, the experience of the self is always a defeat for the ego. And, th and that's exactly what the journey to wholeness is, one defeat for the ego after another. Ramana Maharshi said, quite simply, there is no greater mystery than this. Being reality ourselves, we seek to gain reality. <laughs> Albert Einstein said quite, said, quite simply, there are two ways to live your life. One is as though nothing is a miracle. The other is as, as if everything is a miracle. You know, and it really is it's a profound perspective to walk through the world and realize the sidewalk is a miracle. You know, the fire hydrant is a miracle, you know. From T.S. Eliot, this is from the Four Quartets. Men's curiosity searches past and future and clings to that dimension, but to apprehend the point of intersection of the timeless with time is an occupation for the saint. No occupation either, but something given and taken in a lifetime's death and love, ardor and selflessness and self-surrender. Henry Miller said, The moment one gives close attention to, every, to anything, even a blade of grass, it becomes mysterious, awesome, indescribably magnificent world in itself. From Aldous Huxley. The world is poetic intrinsically. What it simply means is itself. Its significance is the enormous mystery of its existence and our awareness of its existence. Terence Gray, who moved to China and became Wei Wu Wei, said, There is no mystery whatsoever, only the inability to perceive the obvious. <laughs> Abraham Maslow said, the great lesson from the true mystics, from the Zen monks, from the humanistic and transpersonal psychologists, is that the sacred is in the ordinary, that it is to be found in one's daily life, in one's neighbors, 
friends and family in one's own backyard. This lesson can be easily lost. To be looking for elsewhere for miracles is a sure sign of ignorance that everything is miraculous. Thomas Merton said, you do not need to know precisely what is happening or exactly where it is all going. What you need to do is recognize the possibility and challenges offered by the present moment and to embrace them with courage, faith, and hope. Joanna Macy said, you are held within the web of life with flows of energy and intelligence far exceeding your own. Ram Dass said, The art of life is to stay wide open and vulnerable, yet at the same time to sit with the mystery and awe and with the unbearable pain, just to be with it all. I've been growing into that wonderful catchphrase, be here now, for the last 40 years. Pema Chodron said, To be fully alive, fully human, and completely awake is to be continually thrown out of the nest, to be... To live fully is to be in no man's land, to experience each moment as completely new and fresh. To live is to be willing to die over and over again. Choyang Trumpa says, Becoming awake involves seeing our confusion more clearly. (laughs) Anne Lamott says, I do not understand the mystery of grace, only that it meets us where we are, but does not leave us where it found us. That one is very is really deep. Arjuna Arda says, what was considered a peak mystical experience a few years ago, today is a basic platform of sanity from which our exploration begins. And this wonderful one from Anita Doyle, she said, before she could speak, my daughter taught me the language of silent things, fruits, flowers, and oaken chair, I came to understand through my relationships with this small being why the word adult forms the root of adulteration and adultery. Watching her, it became apparent that as we mature, we fall from the grace of the whole-seeing beginner's mind that is our birthright. If, as Emily Dickinson says, what awaits us in the unfurnished eye, then what awaits us are the senses we are born with. She's a teenager now, but when Lila was six months old, she reawakened me to, to the way in which an orange speaks.